VVFA Radio, live from the VNA in London. Um, dear friend is here. My next interviewee is here, David Banquet. Hello. How hey. you doing, David? Yeah, very good. And you? Good, good, good. Uh, so, full disclosure, David and I were friends in high school. So, that's not I really why he's here, but it's, that's why I'm so happy that he's here. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here as well. <laughs> no, we won't talk about any high school stuff, right? <laughs> no, there'll be, there'll be, it's, you know, um, we'll both be shooting each other in the head. That's like a, a duel, so Mexican standoff, you know, sort of, if you don't say anything about high school, I won't say anything yeah, about like high school. We definitely won't mention the band we're in. Oh, yeah, no, we're... <laughs> You bastard. He's done it already. <laughs> we definitely will not mention it or what it was called. Okay. Um, but uh, let me introduce uh, David slightly more formally. Um, uh, David is a designer and design researcher. He's a PhD candidate in information experience design at the Royal College of Art London. Um, it's a PhD that's uh, made possible by the Microsoft Scholarship. He's also a lecturer at Goldsmith Uni University in design. Um, and. So to start us off, David, um, we've known each other since high school, but we lost touch a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but you went to uh, design uh, school for design for your undergrad, and that's how you got interested in uh, technology and kind of you know the early to mid 2000s kind of moments of mm -hmm. how to how to do stuff on the internet. Yeah. So well, basically, I wanted to be a typographer. Right. So, so very straight ahead designer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I moved to Holland. To yeah. study that because they're very good uh, in typography over there, uh, and basically over the course of the BA, I got more interested in the um, the technical tools. I think than uh, well, typography is is really interesting and a very good eye trainer. I think. But uh, when you say technical tools, you mean like literally the so sort of yeah, the computing processes and yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, t uh, typography is a really uh, programming intensive. Um, discipline. Right. You want to generate whole like typeface families and things like that. Uh, it involves a lot of Python programming. Oh, yeah. oh boy. And actually, the guys who are teaching this in the Hague, uh, one of them is like the brother. Um, Just von Rossum is the brother of Guido von Rossum, the inventor of Python. So this was like a really kind of oh, tight, yeah. tightly knit, um, you know, family ties yeah. between typography and Python programming. Uh, and I think had I done the, had I gone the typographer route, I would have done it for the programming, right? Rather than for the black and white curves that you stare at all day. So right. that's what kind of what I realized. Um, and then after that, I became really interested in, uh, yeah, I guess technology as a tool. And I was started um, when you were saying you were DJing also and, and doing sort of event-based stuff. Uh, like yeah, well, mainly, mainly VJing. So oh, VJ, doing right? Like, sorry. Um, yeah. Vidi visuals in clubs and stuff like that and yeah. making my own kind of max msp patches yeah uh, for this yeah. and no you were headed you were headed down the programming wormhole and yeah, the sort exactly. of interactivity sort of topics i would yeah, imagine yeah, yeah. yeah and so i did some of that and worked uh, for a couple of years there in an agency which kind of allowed me to do that and also a lot of web stuff right and then um I moved to London right. to do the, uh, the design interactions course. Right. And there, I think, uh, the first kind of shift happened where technology became a subject right. rather than uh, just a tool. Right. So I was still, obviously, you know, designing today means using computers and thinking about how to make them do what you want them to do. Right. But also, so in the RCA, the technology became also uh, a subject of inquiry. 
Yeah, um, and and I've seen in a lot of, of your work, uh, sort of from the from when you were a student at the RCA and, and mm -hmm. afterwards, that it's um, you've used a lot of techniques of the 3D modeling and making scale models uh, quite often, or representing things on sort of that level of abstraction of like mm. you know, building entire cities and sort of having quite a quite a removed look, sort of a, a broader lens on something. So you're not yeah, even yeah, yeah. looking at a tool, you're looking at a system and a situation, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. And that's li that's very much something that happened at the RCA. So yeah. I learned, like I, I literally kind of added a dimension to my practice, which is really cheesy, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I started l learning 3D programs and using that. But very much... Oh, right. oh yeah, you meant that literally. Because of course, <laughs> I, I was skipping ahead to like yeah. fifth, you know, multidimensional <laughs> space. But you were yeah, you were doing 2D work and you really went 3D As work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. so the, um, it was interesting because the... So I learned... I mean, my approach to all this 3D stuff is obviously like from an image making right. background, right? I come from graphics. Right. So that's what I look at. But the, the culture of uh, the RCA department, so critical design and speculative design, this is all very much rooted in industrial design. Yeah. Um, but the, also the appearance of industrial design. So right. Well, you know, these were kind of almost, almost conflicting um, right. view. Well, not conflicting, but you know, they weren't completely aligned. And so I think what interested me there was to start playing with things. And for example, in some projects, uh, it's almost like two and a half D rather than, right. uh, you know, it's kind of like playing around the, the, the tools. Yeah. Um, and so and when, you, when you talk about that conflict, I assume you mean the, the idea that if you're prototyping something uh, in industrial design, you're working through the object and sort of the, the constraints of the object rather than if you were approaching it from the marketing department, so to speak, you have to sort of create the narrative and the... The, um, the you know how to re represent the object not the function of the object yeah yeah exactly right. so a lot of uh, the previous work in critical design was about um, you know fu functional fictions and fictional right. functions and things right. like that and right. how do you suggest what an object what a product does right. through its appearance but also how do you suggest its its kind of origins right so uh, Dun and Raby for example uh do did a lot of work around you know making something look mass manufactured right and how does that affect your perspective your perception of it um for me it was more about crafting the image right yeah and about crafting the the product that then gets photographed yeah do you know what i mean i kind of like right, right, right. Got interested. Yeah. and so what i'm what i'm thinking about when i'm making these things is a lot is a lot closer to studio photography for example yeah i would imagine uh, yeah than, than um injection molding right <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so um if you don't mind like talk us through some uh, uh, one of the more recent project that you know uses some of this language uh semicopia which oh yeah so this is a project i did uh between i think 2014 and 16. right this was a, a collaboration between uh the university of bath in the right. uk the bioengineering department oh right yeah um the there was also a an ngo called new harvest right who are all about cellular agriculture so and the project was about um in vitro meat Right. So the idea of growing meat in the lab and um, the possible kind of implications of that, mm -hmm. uh, and more more specifically, we got a grant from the Royal Academy of Engineering, right, uh, which was about public engagement. So the the core focus of the project was to speak to engineers and give right. them tools to think about their work in the context in the broader context of society. Right. So not just whether or not 
you're going to be able to make the meat grow. Right. But what this might do to our culture and things like that. Yeah. Um, so, so what's the sort of in, in speculative design terms, what's the what if of this project or so well what, what's the leap that you're making, the degree of leaping that you're so operating? That's, that's the really interesting thing for me about this project is that it, d it, it ended up not being at all about the w a w a specific what if, okay. but about the, the history of the future of food. Oh, yay. So oh, <laughs> meta. So we got fascinating. Uh, and this is pretty a move that that um, I think since that that project really kind of marked a departure point for me, where the 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 idea of speculation becomes a subject. Right. Also. Yeah. Um, so what what happened was we ran a series of workshops with engineering students. Right. And we had them kind of depict possible futures of food, and and we were kind of surprised. Uh, we did this, I think, three or four times. Right. Um, and we were very surprised by the, the amount of um, tropes, science fiction tropes that yeah. came back. So it was the same stories. Yeah. You know, it was like, you have protesters wanting natural food. You have, right. you know, an evil McDonald's-like corporation which makes secret burgers. Yeah. You have the... Uh, yeah, the, the faceless uh, conglomerate. Yeah, yeah and like <laughs> yeah. animals on Mars and like all these things that... Um, kind of obfuscated any further thinking or debate because they all f you know directly linked to these science fiction stories and then that was kind of dead ends yeah uh, well, it's, so well it's also yeah if the premise is a trope the conclusion is sort of get, get can kind of drives to a certain thing where the the protesters are necessarily the good guys the corporation is necessarily terrible yeah or whichever way you look at it you know yeah. everything is kind of dealt in advance so yeah exactly the, the, yeah. The, the the exercise of like thinking about these through these possible futures kind of gets yeah. uh, aborted really quickly. Yeah, true. Um, yeah. So we got really interested in that and uh, we were very lucky to have an additional two um, academics that weren't on previously on the ground but through kind of networks and stuff ended up um, attending the workshops. Cool. One of them was uh, Ben Wargaft from MIT. Okay. And the other one was Alexandra Sexton. She's uh, in geography at King's College in London. Okay. And they both look at food from a historical and a kind of sociological perspective. Yeah. Uh, and so Ben kind of brought on board a, a key reference, which is a book called Meals to Come by Warren Belasco, okay. uh, where he does a history of the futures of food. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and uh, specifically the history... Uh, of three kind of strands of tropes right uh, which really helped us kind of articulate what we're seeing in the workshops so you have the cornucopian futures where science will solve everything yeah you have right. the malthusian kind of population bomb narrative where um you know population so we won't be able to feed everyone so that leads you to kind of population control and all these right. dark things yeah and then you have uh the last one which is oh god from memory um I forget, but better table manners. You right. Know, if only you were. Oh uh, sure. So if only we could distribute what we have, then right. Uh, you know, in more kind of uh, equal ways, then we would be fine. Right. So, so, the, so yeah, right. Bigger, yeah, so bigger personal cake, responsibility. Yeah. Bigger cake, less forks. Right. Better table manners. <laughs> right. <laughs> Where the three kind of uh, narratives, and so um, in vitro meat is definitely part of the the kind of cornucopian promise, of like science saving. Yeah. Uh, saving us. Yeah saving uh, the food issue um, and so we started looking at it very much through as part of that lineage right and in that lineage are the um, the world's fairs 
oh, wow. where you know uh, all these kind of technological promises were made and also embodied in kind of models you know Futurama General Motors Futurama being one kind right. of classic example of you know America with cars being yeah. presented as a model and then implemented yeah um, so we started thinking through um, the problems in that way and so we almost the project almost became like a scenario generator right uh, where we did um, you know we had these kind of three knobs Maltus like egalitarian Malthusian and cornucopian and started asking like okay what if you're you know what if these were scales right what if you could have a scenario for you know the fully Malthusian a little bit cornucopian and you know like right. almost taking this as a brief generator yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we ended up with three scenarios which uh, I then made into these kinds of dioramas. Right. But the idea is that these are not... The, I think the value of the project isn't in the, in, th in the scenarios themselves. You know, it's right. more in the kind of thinking about the future of food. Yeah. Recognizing the history. Right. So placing back... But in vitro meat into a lineage it's not you know like right it's, it's not actually not the new, new exciting headline yeah. in fact yeah it's actually pretty close to like whatever 1900 unveiling of the first hamburger right you yeah know what I mean? like well <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um which we actually submitted the grand proposal a month after um the 2013 august 2013 uh first in vitro hamburger there was like this televised yeah, right. tasting that was like <laughs> crazy on so many levels but um <laughs> so yeah we, we kind of you know grabbed that lineage and put it back into the project so i think for me what was interesting is that it became about how the future and the idea of you know speculative scenarios has evolved yeah um no so and so this is what uh, traces a road uh, quite clearly to your the premise of your phd work mm -hmm. because it's interesting to hear about this project that there's a the project has to operate a comparative study of these sort of cultural um sort of things that become cultural tropes or sort of orient cultural orientations that yeah, are yeah, yeah. that are that's quite interesting it seems that you know in that case uh you know i feel like the rhetoric of speculative design is often sort of presented sort of examination of the future but in fact it's sort of examination of the futures <laughs> that have existed mm -hmm. and the, how the future is discussed yeah, yeah, so yeah. that kind of meta layer of uh, interrogation interrogating speculation itself yeah, seems yeah, to yeah. be the premise of what you're doing mm -hmm. so i don't know if your if your research has a title right now but i know that you're looking at uh, predictive models and i would assume the history of predictive models yeah 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 very much so so yeah my um well the title at the moment is uh, world world dot predict uh bracket bracket so latin code oh i see you know. <laughs> oh back to oh <laughs> like boy. i'm calling the the predict uh method oh i see world. okay so wow yeah that's pretty nerdy that's great uh, no i, I know <laughs> <laughs> so so to unpack it's it's but it's also to unpack it's to say that it's a title that has a an action built into it if you were right. coding this you'd be calling a function up so it's, yeah. it's a very active title and the predict method actually r really exists oh so i see oh well, this is really okay learn you can actually call predict on, on something so and yeah. And um, and so uh, well, perhaps let's talk about the, what you've been doing in terms of that uh, that project that you presented um, at the London School of Communication. Is mm -hmm. that where we were the yeah, other day? Yeah. So that's a show called Uncertainty Playground. That's currently on until the twentieth, I think, of October. Right. Yeah. So and and it was a it's a, a video. Well, it's a lot of sort of three D models that are mm -hmm. getting moved through or that are themselves um, in motion. But it's a sort of comparative study of various. Uh, predictive models and, mm -hmm. and you were particularly interested for this project it seems in, in how a lot of these mathematical models are actually quite um, 
formally they're spatial and yeah, so yeah, that yeah. whether or not they're represented as mathematics you can represent them spatially in something that that has its own sort of visual history yeah yeah exactly so well so early on in the phd work i kind of ran into a, a black hole uh, <laughs> a recursive <laughs> black hole of death so uh, well this yeah, that's like that's that's the phd right gonna <laughs> isn't do that the whole <laughs> speculative design about technologies of speculation yeah so there was kind of a a, a nice little trap there yeah um so what I'm doing at the moment is I'm taking a very visual approach right. uh, through this concept of possibility space, right. which was, uh, well, the, the kind of source for this is um, Stuart Candy's 2010 thesis, right. uh, where he uses that cone of possible, of possible. Promote, something he borrowed from future studies, but then brought into design. And that was like super instrumental into the development of speculative design. So it's called the futures cone. Yeah, let's, let's describe it for people that haven't seen it, of yeah, what so the different parts of it. It's actually very straightforward, but it's, yeah. It's a cone that extends into the future. So the point is the present yeah. and it extends out um, in three kind of um, yeah, sort of widening cones within yeah. each other. So the, the middle one is the, the probable, what's yeah. most likely to happen. Yeah. Then you have uh, the plausible. Right. What you what you could believe may happen, yeah. sort of and thing. And then the yeah. edge of the, the the wider one is the the possible, so the physically possible. Right. Um, and so intersecting these is another cone, which isn't necessarily aligned with the other ones. In right. some versions, it bleeds outside of the possible, which I think is the probably the the better description. So this is the the preferable zone. Right. Right. Uh, and yeah. so as a as a kind of mental or like conceptual map yeah to think through different futures this yeah. is what he used but so well so this was very much in my background right after the rca and all that and so i was quite interested to look at machine learning and all these statistical computational techniques uh, that are as you said really kind of spatial mathematics right so they're all you know it's it's all linear algebra so it's where it works on vectors right and on matrices and on tensors which are very much spatial maths so right. you have you know algorithms called nearest neighbors right and you know um, um, things like that that are very much uh, uh, it seems uh, uh, turning data into a space right and then querying or modifying that space right through uh, algorithms and then this you know like uh, drawing for example decision boundaries right uh, between different um, in, in a classifier you know between the different categories you draw the algorithm draws these boundaries right and yeah beyond this certain hard line it's it's another class and yeah. under it it's it's the previous class and things like that but, so but I that's was interested that's in, in kind of using possibility space as a kind of term for all these different versions right um in order to set up this kind of back and forth uh between um between these things and possibly to articulate maybe a role for speculative design when the context of our everyday life is decided and guided by these kind of spatial mathematics of prediction yeah because um, no, so this yeah, this this yeah this takes the angle of, of speculation from a completely different angle you know it, it's a completely different direction to to ask the question from because i think um on the one hand you have sort of you know depictions of how technologies is, are used or you know things that you've done mm -hmm. and on the other hand you have this whole with uh, statistics and all that comes in 
also uh, the world of information retrieval from using your cell phone and all this stuff and mm -hmm. the and the labor that we all perform by being on the internet and things like that so mm -hmm. it becomes the notion of the those probability trees and what may happen and suggestion algorithms all sort of converge into this yeah. something that's much more systematic and has to be sort of addressed at the engineering level not as a you know i feel like the Stuart candy's formalization of the cone of possibility is much more much more broad and open-ended thinking tool whereas you your approach is going to have has a much more applied ramification yeah um, yeah, yeah but I, i'm also so the other so the what i why i'm interested in this notion of possibility space is because there is another kind of theory that i'm bolting onto this okay is the notion of um affirmative versus affirmative speculation right which is articulated by a group called uncertain commons in a in a book um that's called speculate speculate this right and so this is ba the basic distinction between affirmative speculation which aims to control right and kind of pin down the future to right. make it firm right and um, to into sort of the, to make a safe bet basically to make a heavy mm, to be, be able to, to be able or whatever right you know. yeah. but also you know uh, to um to control right to foreclose certain possibilities and to make sure right. others happen etc right so this is very much the kind of algorithmic governmentality as we see it yeah and then so opposed to that um is the affirmative which aims to unsettle to make right. the commons and to open as many uh futures as possible yeah which is you know supposedly the aim of speculative design but then my question is how do you do this yeah potentially with computation right or yeah. like you know how do you put these things in in conflict yeah. on, a, on an even kind of playing field and i think that's what i'm trying to do with the possibility space stuff yeah but it, that, that that makes a lot of sense. What's striking to me is it actually makes it connect to, um, I mean, I'll make a leap that I'll explain, but it starts to connect to sort of performative practices because as soon as you think of, to be very straightforward, of wearable technologies or anything that's uh, that has a sensor that you can carry or wear, then of course the first disruption you can operate is to pre to behave erratically or at least mm. erratically to the previous day or erratically yeah, yeah, yeah. for your sort of however you're being determined by what's observing you. Mm -hmm. And so weirdly, that starts to open a door into conceptually into the performance of the self and into performative practices in general. And of course, that, you know, I have to mention since Worms were here and they do like, you know, completely improvised music yeah. and sort of as soon as you, in musical terms, you talk about disrupting what, you sh what you're sure will happen, it's the practice would have to be some kind of pretty radical free improv. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's, I know it's sort of a metaphoric and conceptual leap, no, but, no, no, but no, in a way it seems to, yeah. you know, you could, there's no, you don't have to exclude computation from that, but it's sort of your behavior and use of the tool as well. Yeah, yeah. so I, I'm particularly interested in, in people, so there, there are lots of calls to reclaim speculation. Right, uh, yeah. From philosophy, from social science, you know, yeah. to reclaim it as a kind of method to open up rather than yeah. kind of foreclose or profit. Uh, but I'm, so there's an easy route that would say, you know, well, all these, you know, computational methods are evil and they're, you know, they've, they've colonized the future. Yeah. So the way of decolonizing that is to just somehow know, not do it. Yeah. Them. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but Which I is think always a non-answer. Um, yeah. I think that's less interesting for, for a few reasons. And one of them is, um, there's a group that's actually French. They're called, uh, Statactivism. Okay. So using quantification to liberate futures is their kind of goal. Yeah. So that would and be, yeah. Yeah. And their argument, their argument is that we can't let, um, capital and power 
uh, we can't let these really powerful tools in just in the hands of capital and power. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because otherwise, we we've kind of shot the, shot ourselves in the foot. Yeah. Uh, and there is a few people who are doing really interesting things in that area. Um, Alison Parrish. She's okay. an artist, uh, poet, computational poet in uh, in New York. I think she's based. Cool. Uh, and she has a brilliant talk. I think it's I O two thousand fourteen. Okay. Where she so she makes a lot of bots, okay, uh, and she kind of talks about these bots as as little space probes, right? Really for this program, right? Uh, yeah, and she sends out into uh, the kind of the borders of common sense, and nice. they kind of send back some telemetry about um, you know what's what's not what's never been written, right? Like what's you know these kinds of oh, that's fascinating, yeah, through, um, through computation. So that that kind of approach, I'm really. Um, excited about yeah that's fascinating um <laughs> andrew andrew is letting us know that we should keep going for seven more hours <laughs> no and andrew friend is saying hi uh we're but maybe actually uh, it's a good time to to end our conversation um yeah. before before i let you go um i have to ask you since i haven't seen you in forever what have you been listening to this used to be the big bonding point is like I, oh, I'll, there's a, it, like, this is the wrong question to ask me because I've actually so um, you've just been reading and <laughs> teaching <laughs> no, 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 and no, nothing no, else. I have been listening <laughs> to loads of music, but uh, so I find that every deadline kind of calls for like some stuff that I used to listen to a lot, uh -oh. uh, but um, haven't listened to it in a long time. So uh -oh. I've actually been listening to uh, a lot of placebo. Yeah, uh, 90s flashback. And also uh, a lot of Tool. Oh man! <laughs> oh man! <laughs> I'm so, <laughs> so happy yeah, to hear that. Anima from Tool. Oh, yeah, man. Because I, I saw them. But anyway, that's oh. for another story. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. I'm so glad we have a little flashback to the 90s. Burn. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for being here, David. Cheers. Thank and you. Yeah, nice to see you. And uh, we're gonna, I'm going to queue up some music, and uh, we're going to play some more things so here, here on DDFA. here is Tool at um, Ozfest St. Louis in uh, <laughs> 1997. I so wish Take I could do away, that. <laughs> <laughs> I so wish I could do that.